So, tooling. Can't live with it, can't live without it. Or I prefer to live with it, actually. Uh, my two favorite general, general tools that help me all day are Enter. Uh, it's E-N-T-R. It's a very small command line tool, uh, which uh, you can use to monitor if a file changes or if a whole directory changes. And if it does, it runs a command. Ah, yeah. Very nice. And the other tool is GNU Make. With these <laughs> two tools, I can do almost anything. I use them for, for everything from uh, compiling Haskell to... I need a Haskell compiler, of course, but also to uh, compile uh, LaTeX to PDF or uh, Markdown to HTML or yeah, stuff like that. So that's the general tooling I'm using all day, every day in my life. What's tooling for you? Yeah, I usually don't focus on those super building blocksy tools for what I do day to day. I have a few of those that like tools that I definitely use that are general. Uh, but when you're talking about tooling, that makes me think of uh, sort of build tools and deployment tools and sort of meta tools for programmers. And the ones you mentioned are, are certainly that. When you said enter, I was like, and next he's going to say spacebar. <laughs> <laughs> These are great tools. Sometimes they even use backspace. I don't know about that. Yeah, <laughs> never go back. Only never right go back. forward. Only forward. Uh, no, but for most ecosystems that I work in, um, there are definitely there are definitely sort of opinionated uh, tools that are that are the correct tool for that space. So for Elixir, for example, there you have Mix, which is the tool for for running defined tasks and setting up your databases and generating code and building releases and all of that stuff. Sort of your NPM, but, but, but doesn't make me as mad. It seems like a Swiss chainsaw for uh, Elixir. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, uh, so it was influenced by uh, Ruby's Rake and Ruby's Bundler, I think, oh. which are, so the packaging tool and the run things tool. Um, and like Django and Python has similar stuff. Then you have pip for packages. and uh, But in Elixir, we've, we have it collapsed into a single single tool a single command to manage most of that and i think that's pretty nice but i've definitely been recently dealing with a project where someone else decided that a make file was the correct way of building things i have some notes on the specifics of the make file but it works uh, once i figured out how to make it <laughs> it still has javascript dependency so it was still flaky as all hell <laughs> but that's not makes fault <laughs> It depends. Um, <laughs> but then I ended up setting, just building a watch.sh uh, that does uh, essentially what Enter does, but I think I used a slightly lower level tool for, for watching directories. Oh, cool. Uh, and just rerunning the build script every time something changes because I wanted... So this was Elm, and I wanted the compiler warnings and my... The compiler warnings in Elm are super helpful, but the Elm tooling in VS Code, which I'm using, keeps crashing with a parsing error. I'm not sure why. Oh no. That's so the worst. I just get a red <laughs> file that says parsing error. Oh. And then I get none <laughs> of the help, none of the autocomplete, none of the go to definitions. It's just dead. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing, way to restore it is restart the entire uh, code session, which I won't be bothered to do. So I use the command restart Elm language server, and then it sort of dies, and I don't think it comes back up, which is better than the whole file being read. So yeah. it just <laughs> basically disables <laughs> it. So uh, the command line uh, make file thing, that one runs properly without a parsing error 
which cool. means which means I, I've had that on watching the files and just running so I can see yeah errors that I'm supposed to be seeing in my ID. Ah, nice. How does it feel to almost have a working ID? Is it is it worse than not having it at all? Very familiar. <laughs> very, very familiar. So uh, Elixir has a good language server. But it has some, some less nice part. Uh, it uses dialyzer for some stuff, uh, which tends to sometimes get hung up on processing a bunch of files sort of when you when you switch branches and a lot of files change it will uh, it will misbehave sometimes and yeah it's that language server definitely has some challenges it's very very useful but it's also a bit finicky and the elm one is straight up just unreliable it keeps it completely crashes out uh, and everything stops working. Oh, I have a hypothesis. Yeah. And that is the smaller the community, the worse the tooling. Uh, do you think that hypothesis holds? You only need to find one counterexample. I haven't heard that good of a story on Java tooling. There's certainly a lot of it. That's a good point. Uh, and whether you think sort of C-sharp.net and Visual Studio, the big one... Uh, is good tooling or not depends a lot on what you want out of tooling. It's not for me. It's so not for me. It's, oh, there's so much XML. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if we add that if the tooling is configured by XML, uh, it's you, you can't have it. It's <laughs> Will my hypothesis hold then? <laughs> I, th I think it's more complicated than that because I arguably rust is not the biggest community it's definitely oh, it's a tiny. growing one and it's it's a strong one but they are also very focused on tooling from what i understand tooling and docs and stuff yeah it's excellent the cargo and uh, formatting and everything it just or it was excellent a couple of years ago yeah yeah i think they've kept up the direction it seems like Elixir is extremely niche. Uh, yeah. And the tooling, I would say, is extremely good overall. Cool. The language server is probably not... So I think a, a big reason why the language server is the way it is is it's wrangling tools that are sort of uh, unwieldy. Yeah. Uh, they have sort of long processing times and caches to maintain and <laughs> invalidate and yeah so i don't particularly blame the language server and i know it's also been been sort of under resourced because it's a so mix comes from the elixir project itself while the language server is entirely community driven okay it was built by a guy and then he stopped use stopped working with elixir i think he stopped programming it overall um and sort of the a group of community members stepped in and made sure it kept working and they keep working at it yeah and i i think sort of if you look at php huge community i wouldn't say the tooling was great uh, it might be better now it's certainly so php has a lot of different smaller ponds yep. <laughs> so if you're doing wordpress there's a wordpress cli that didn't exist when i was doing wordpress i think if you're doing drupal there's the drupal shell which is a specific thing for doing drupal stuff and some of these tools are good some of them are bad they're better than not existing and <laughs> it's like yeah i think some later languages have benefited a lot from from being conceived in a world where we'd figured out a lot of things about tooling yeah. already. I wonder if there is a tooling heritage or tooling... I want a tooling heritage tree. Uh, and I think it begins with either Ruby or JavaScript. Um, 
because if you look at uh, Elixir, comes yeah. the tooling ideas come from Ruby. Rust, the tooling ideas come from Ruby. Uh, if you look at Ember, Ember.js, the tooling ideas and Ember.js, much of the ideas behind that come from Ruby. Um, so I, I wonder what why that is and if that is even true. Uh, but that's my hypothesis. My new hypothesis, since you debunked my last one. <laughs> yeah, and I would say uh, when it comes to niche uh, communities and good tooling, so Elm overall seems to have very good tooling Yeah, for its very, very niche uh, usage and sort of incredibly opinionated approach to it. Yep, it's basically a domain-specific language. Yeah, and I, I'm learning more and more about it. It wasn't my plan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we, we need to do a, a sidospor. There's a perfect English word for that um, about Elm. Sidetrack. Sidetrack. I'm going to sidetrack you. Uh, so, how's Elm? Are you enjoying it? It's getting better. Nice. The syntax was... Some of the syntax has been clear from the very start. Which parts? Some of, so sort of defining a function uh, and like, yeah, okay, I can't set any variables along the way. That's a little bit annoying, but I know like th this is a thing in some functional languages. Yep. Sure. Uh, and it has an escape patch for that. So you can let a number of variables in something and then uh, then you you can predefine them to not get a unreadable mess of code. Yep. Um, so most of that was manageable to figure out. Cool. But then I encountered some stuff with sort of continuation passing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and previous developers on this particular project have had uh, written their own approach to JSON parsing. And I think JSON parsing, parsing and JSON management is a very contentious issue in the Elm community. Oh, it is. Or or it's considered a solved problem. But I, I from reading, it doesn't seem like, like people are in complete agreement on how it's supposed to be done. Okay. Um, but basically, Elm does not allow you to do things arbitrarily so you can't just pass around arbitrary values you have to decode and encode to get in and out of javascript data or json strings okay so when you want to go into elm land you need to have something that elm understands yeah so there is a type value and there is the type string and both of these can be used to decode from okay yeah um and then you go, okay, I require that this has a string named ID and I uh, will I will require that, or actually this is, this particular developer uh, had this particular approach to, uh, to decoding JSON. So they provided a, a particular API and it, it used continuation parsing, which has so much, so much line noise. Yep in the syntax. I think I showed you that line. It's like Yeah, it was amazing. field.require field name. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then we have we pass the decoder function that can handle whatever it is we want to handle. Typically it could be decode.string. Yeah. Sure, makes sense. Uh, then we have a less than pipe symbol which is arrow to the left. Yeah, is function composition or function application one of those uh, two? Piping. It's piping. Okay, got it. Yeah. Um, so we pipe left, and then there's a backslash and a variable name. Ah. ID. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. And then there's a forward arrow made by dash greater than. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, hmm. I think I see what this, and then there's multiple lines of this for different fields. Okay, so one line for each field they want to decode. Yeah, so basically it's just wrapping callbacks on callbacks on callbacks yeah. on callbacks. Continuation parsing style at its best. Uh, and 
it works fine. And at the end, you go, decode succeed. Uh, <laughs> and when you built your data structure, and then it will be passed all the way out. Or rather, uh, your your function probably just defines a decoder. So it's it, it's just, uh, it returns a function, I guess. Yeah. It sounds incredibly noisy. It did get a bit, it does get a bit noisy. And I, I haven't, because this code base uses that, I have kept using that. I haven't looked at like, but what would what would be the normal Elm way of doing it? Yeah. Because I I want to code into what I what's already there. Uh, but it took me a while to figure out what any of this did because sort of the backwards pipe for so that one makes sense because it want you want the callback as the last part of the thing and the convention is that the callback is the first yep. part of the function call in Elm. Um, so you th- use the pipe to toss it to the back, um, yep. to the st- start of the function call. So you can have all the short parts before it. Yeah. And But then I hadn't seen the anonymous function syntax, which starts with backslash uh, and any arguments. Yeah. So... And then an arrow. So I was like, what fresh hell is this? <laughs> um, and then yeah. it took me a while because the, the very basic sort of Elm guide that tells you all about the language does not tell you all about the language. There are, there's a lot more documentation around that you can dig up. Yeah, I think it is like uh, when you get told everything about math when you're 10 years old, you don't yeah, get it's... told everything about math. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so that was that was, for example, somewhere where I found just the syntax absolutely unreadable. And then there's there's a tendency, especially in this code base, where there's a lot of results and a lot of maybes, especially yeah. results. Yeah. And I, after building with it for a while, I realized, like, yeah, okay, it might make sense that there are these men this many results, because you often want to handle errors. Yeah. So, so a result is either, okay, here's your value or error, here's your error code. Yep. But it also means that whenever I want to access anything, you need to unpack I need it. To, yeah, I need to unpack it. So it's result and then, result and then, result and then, <laughs> maybe and then. Um, That's kind of horrible. Yeah, so the code keeps walking to the right. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of stuff I haven't quite figured out with Elm around when does it need a parenthesis and not. Because this continuation passing uh, JSON decoder thing does not seem to be need a parenthesis around the anonymous function, which is nice. It becomes very neat uh, in that sense. But everywhere else, I've done similar code. Every single time I use and then, I seem to need disambiguating parentheses. Yeah, I think they might get away with it because of the uh, less than pipe operator. Yeah, and when I've tried that in other places, it has screwed up. Oh no. (laughs) But it might be because it also returns a function. I'm not sure. This is interesting. I don't... I don't actually know the answer to why this is sometimes an issue and sometimes not. And these things have driven me absolutely up a wall. It's like, uh, have I entirely misunderstood the concept or am I just not doing the syntax right? And like, oh, I need to indent this end parentheses. (laughs) Oh, no. I, I usually... My trick in Haskell when I get upset with the syntax is to add more parentheses and then put everything on the same line and then run the formatter. And then things usually work out. Yeah. So Elm sidetrack uh, goes deep, but... Yeah, it's a long track. Uh, there, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff around the typing where I, I'm definitely seeing what some people see as the big advantage and i think specifically for elm's use case which is building web applications in the browser so as a replacement for javascript single page stuff yeah 
it really, really eliminates a lot of undefined behavior, which oh, is lovely. super, super interesting for someone who's used to sort of vanilla JS. Yeah. Um, when it compiles, it tends to do the right thing up to the point where you need to ship some JSON to the server and then all bets are off. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think is fine. You get to carve out your little kingdom of perfect types. Mm. But some of the typing stuff has also been absolute nightmares for for the work I need to do to it. So I can see the upside of types. I can see why people get so excited about them. But I also find them a bit distracting. Yeah. You have to build your system in a different way. You have to think about it in a different way. Yeah. Um, and sort of in Elixir, I'm doing functional programming. But the, and I'm definitely doing some of the OKs and errors. They show up there too. But that's by convention, not because of a strict type that requires me to unpack it. It's an entirely so having these types of types and all the all the inference and the union types and whatever it is um, that means you're going to be programming in a very particular way yes um there's a guy called uh, let's see if i get his name name correct edwin brady perhaps uh, he is the author of the programming language Idris and uh, Idris 2. Yeah, they are separate programming languages. Uh, and they use uh, dependent types where... Okay, the elevator pitch for dependent types, which you absolutely must hear. Another sidetrack, ha! Is that uh, the types can be dependent on the values and the values can be the dependent on the types. And the hello world of dependently typed programming, or at least I think it is, is a uh, list where uh, which you know the length of during the whole execution of the program. Hmm. So you can uh, go, give me the fifth element of the list, uh, and you don't have to check if, during runtime, if you actually can do that because it's already done statically during compile time because we know that this is a list with a length something seven or something so that's cool and uh edwin brady he has uh coined a an expression or a yeah called uh, type driven development yeah where you sit down and you write the types first and just put in Haskell, we put undefined as the function body all over the place. And then after a while, everything type checks. And then we can start putting things into the function bodies. Uh, and that's kind of lovely. But it's also, it takes a while before it becomes natural. And it's, it's not, it doesn't fit all problems. Yeah, and I think I accidentally crashed into doing this. So I think someone trying to learn Elm will have a much better time than I did because I did not come here to learn Elm. I came here to change some <laughs> things in an Elm program. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Okay. And as a consequence, I had to learn Elm and I had to learn a lot of Elm. I didn't get to restrain myself to sort of just the stuff I need. Because yeah. someone else had already put all the stuff in there and I need to deal with it. And they had put it in continuation passing style. And I really wonder why. <laughs> because that's one of the harder harder ways to program and to read code. Yeah. It's a very good way to write a very fast... It's a very good uh, compiler target. Uh, so if you make a functional program compiler, you can use continuation passing style as the compiler target. And everyone is quite happy. Yeah, I think I think the big reason why why that was the style of that library okay. was because it was uh, fairly succinct. You 
only need one line per thing you want to parse and uh, a lot of the patterns you end up using otherwise might be a little bit more heavyweight on the sort of lines of code uh, which also has a consequence for sort of navigating around and yeah. enjoying the work but yeah uh yeah so i i got the deep dive uh, first <laughs> um and to actually segue watch this okay so i think one of the arguments why people are so excited about types is because it allows for better tooling it does it does indeed that's a very nice segue <laughs> yeah and most of the languages i've done done serious work with throughout my career have been high-level dynamic scripting languages yeah predominantly and the tooling has always been eh sort of <laughs> <laughs> uh, so going into python is like oh nice we get a, pa a package management thing uh so we had virtual env and uh, pip that's that's great great yep. progress compared to sort of composer or composer whatever it's called in php land was just starting to gain proper traction uh, how did you let's see when you went from uh, php to python you were doing a lot of work in drupal right yeah so mostly drupal um how did you manage that were like they have their own module system Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so you can... And the tooling for installing modules, once you get sort of past the the newbie level of uh, actually just downloading the archive and unpacking it in your modules directory, yep. uh, you can actually go in and use drush install. So you have Ooh. this Drupal shell uh, yeah. command. That's, that's a contributed module. Uh, and... That's actually pretty neat. So it, it does allow you to automate installing packages and stuff. Nice. Did you ever install anything outside of the Drupal ecosystem or was it just Drupal modules? Yeah, occasionally you needed something that was a PHP library. Yeah. And I think Composer was starting to gain, gain ground for doing that. Uh, but it was early days when I stopped. Cool. Uh, and comparatively, Python had it all figured out <laughs> yeah definitely and mo many people would say that the packaging store in python is terrible i i hesitate to agree because i think it's okay <laughs> yeah yeah it's okay i prefer it to npm because i've had less breakages i've had a, quite a few breakages with sort of uh python packages moving under my feet uh due to mostly due to, to deprecations and stuff yeah Especially around 2.7. <laughs> or 2.6, yeah. I guess, too. Yeah. But it's... So I think that sort of tooling is eminently doable in dynamic languages. Like package management. There, there's nothing particular there that's harder than it is in a type or a stricter language. No, I think it's easier. Yeah. But when it comes to sort of compile time checking like if you don't have a compile time <laughs> uh, that's one thing and in elixir there is a compile time so you do get a bunch of checking for free and there suddenly you can do a, a lot of more stuff with sort of static analysis because there is a build step naturally nice and uh, there are there are some nice tools for for sort of enforcing style and there's a formatter and all of that and then we have this dialyzer thing which is which is odd uh, but that one does static type analysis yeah or yeah it, it does type analysis of some sort static analysis of some sort yeah where it goes through your code and figures out like no this is actually wrong <laughs> this this is not a correct state of uh, sort of this value is never used uh, or this po code path cannot be reached in this program, uh, that sort of thing. That kind of stuff is so good to have. Uh, but it has the consequence of needing to build sort of a 
big ass cash uh, from an, uh, from the initial analysis. So the first run of dialyzer takes can take a long time, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And yeah, I I think when I've worked with uh, so C sharp .net is probably the opposite of what I've typically worked with. Yeah. And I have done some work in that. And for writing that sort of class heavy OOP with a lot of special configuration for a very, very particular platform, then tooling is, it's built, the whole system is built around you working inside graphical tools. That's scary. Yeah, but when when you're configuring your application and how it's supposed to work primarily via um, via the UI of Visual Studio, I think a lot of Java IDEs are similar in sort of that there's a lot of XML under the hood and you're not really supposed to put your fingers in it. Uh, sometimes you have to, yeah, but but generally it's supposed to be generated i think cool hmm i did my first programming when i was a little kid in borland delphi and so the programming language is a dialect of pascal which is a very strange programming language uh, and it was quite lovely uh, and you can uh, or the idea behind it is that um uh, I got a window to put stuff in, so I could put a button or a text field or a label or something like that, and then just double click the button, and then I can program what happens on the on click event, and the most of the stuff is just taken care of for me. So I can, well, at least a nostalgia. I can really sympathize with that way of working. On the other hand. It's quite nice to have a more hmm, to have a more non-graphical declarative way of declaring the user interfaces. So I'm torn. Yeah, yeah. I think I think sort of what Visiwig, uh, the what you see is what you get approach of building applications is something that we've lost a little bit. And. It's not all good. It's not all bad. It it still lives yeah. around sort of app development, but I think most people that build apps also need to uh, let go of that to to achieve their particular designs and their particular interactions. But yeah, there there's a lot of power in in UI driven or UI powered development. I've done a lot of uh, Flash through the years. So action script. Wow. Why? <laughs> How come? Because I like things that move. Ah, that's a very good point. <laughs> no, but when I was doing web stuff, I was like, oh, wait, I can. So I've installed basically anything that's an editor or authoring environment during my, <laughs> my younger years. <laughs> so I, I was dealing with Flash for basically just drawing and building things and then some animation initially. And then I found out like, okay, you can program this with ActionScript. And then ActionScript just kept growing. <laughs> After a while, I had a bit of a break from it and came back and it's like, what? Classes? Types? <laughs> Why do I have to tell it what type it is? That sounds very over-engineered. <laughs> oh, but would you say the TypeScript is over-engineered then? Hmm. Maybe I have some preconceptions about Flash. <laughs> so uh, Flash as a programming environment was in many ways brilliant because it married, it was domain specific. Yeah. It married visuals and code and it was incredibly flexible. Uh, you could do a lot with very little knowledge and just write some labels and some ids and connect some buttons to some behaviors and make make a ball bounce but you could also sort of build your own win windowing system inside of 
your flash thing and yeah. screw around with transparency before CSS even knew what that was. Uh, it was also the first the first environment to support any kind of useful video. So That's true. YouTube uh, ran on Flash for a very long time. Yeah. I, I've definitely been on the bandwagon of like, Flash sucks, rah, 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 web standards. But honestly, I loved dealing with Flash as a as a builder because I could do cool stuff with it throughout my teens. Yeah. And I think Flash was... Hmm... <laughs> it went old fast, but also it gave you a an environment to work in that you could trust. I couldn't trust the web in the early 2000s. It's like, okay, I built this homepage, it looks nice, it does what I want. And then someone, <laughs> someone gets back to me and like, okay, in IE6, your homepage makes my computer's... It catches on fire. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, or the menu doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Did you use hovers? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, can, I code everything as a table. It will, yeah. Yeah, so Flash was a really interesting programming environment. And I think uh, it's not what I would want for my professional work these days but i think there's so the the space is so big you can definitely have all kinds of editors and environments at this point yeah so i think i think letting go of sort of applications that you go in and build visuals and edit code in and that sort of thing I don't think we should abandon that entirely, but I have a personal preference towards fairly light editors. I'm I'm not super happy with Visual Studio Code. The main reason I want to use it is because it has uh it has good support for language servers and it has uh live share, which is Google Docs for pairing. <laughs> they are killer features. Yeah, they're absolutely ridiculously useful. Yeah. But generally I I've tended to be very light on tools and uh I think a lot of what I want is handled by by command line tools just as just as well beside the collaborative editing and the network effect of everyone already has Visual Studio Code installed pretty much. Yeah. And then if you have some stuff where you need to work on a server they have the go good remote extension if you need to work inside a docker for some ungodly reason uh, they have an extension for that they they really know what they're doing with with the, the features that they're building in there nice but that's also what sort of has me concerned because all the good stuff isn't open source <laughs> yeah you wrote a blog post about that some months ago yeah it's probably a year ago now or so. Oh, yeah. I still think it's March 2020. Yeah, it feels about right. Yeah, 400th of March 2020. <laughs> so. <laughs> Another thing I find interesting is, uh, have you worked anything in Go? Golang? No, I tried it when it was fairly new. Uh, and uh, I was I was curious about sort of because they went hard on tools from the yeah. very get go <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they had the formatter fairly early i don't think they had that when they released but they had it early yeah uh, and they had uh, this idea of sort of specifying what packages you need by just put git repos they are yeah it was built very much from the google use case and then i think it took them a couple of years to implement some package manager. Yeah, but they had package management in that sense already included. Yeah. Yeah, that's that was very interesting. I think Go uh, was a lot more influential than it was successful in the early days. Now it's very su successful. Yep. But I think it took a while for it to to really catch on, but I think everyone saw Go the Go formatter because I don't remember any 
language having an opinionated format or before then. <laughs> I'm sure they existed, yeah. but that mainstreamed it. I'm pretty sure. Oh, yes. Shortly after, I think Python got black. Maybe it did. Yeah, Python had a formatter before. Uh, I don't remember the name of it. It had a pep. <laughs> I know that. It had a pep. Yeah, definitely. And the formatter let you do uh, configure the formatter and do a lot of different things yeah. before Black. And then Black came and you could just uh, go to town um, by pushing the format button and not think. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's ended up being a good practice for any new language. You can. I think there was a big struggle in Elixir around the time the formatter was released because people disagree on the details. <laughs> of course. But having it in place is more important than having it be perfect because yeah. it just removes the point of most arguments around coding style. It's like, yeah, yeah, we'll do it the way we like to do it and then we press save and then we'll do it the way the machine likes it. Yeah, I never ever do code formatting when I use black. I just write everything on the same line, then I save, and then everything's nice. Does that work in Python with significant yeah. white space? Yeah, it does. Uh, for small values of everything. You need to put all uh, statements on new lines, but uh, all expressions you can put on the same line. Okay. So it's very good. Yeah. Another tool I really like for Python is iSort because I prefer to have all imports sorted by uh, lexically or alphabetically. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's super nice uh, to have. I keep meaning to do that when I do things, but it also, like, at a certain point, it's like, we have too many of these damn things. I'm not going to sort them. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, a tool that does that for you is is very nice i think yeah i'm not sure if the elixir formatter does that or not i think it might nice because that's also a thing then i don't need to do a let's see i do an insertion sort but only for one item that's called something else but i need to do that one if i add an import uh if i don't have i sort and that's just eh. so now i can just go to the top of the file uh, put the import there and be happy with it. The next step would, of course, be to have a small tool so I can just push the import button or preferably that it asks me, hey, I don't recognize this. Do you want me to import it? And hey, oh, whoa, I found many, many versions of your config. Which one do you want me to import? Are you considering using an IDE? Yeah, I do it. I use uh, Vim. It's very good. <laughs> I think Vim traditional is not an IDE. And if if you're considering building something that will help you find import, I don't think what you have is an IDE. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think if you were using something like PyCharm, for example, I think that would do most of that for you. Most probably. But you would be using PyCharm. Yeah. The thing is, I think the IntelliJ edit editors are pretty damn good. I think so too. I'm. I've been curious to try um, try them because I know there's a separate uh, tooling project for the IntelliJ stuff for Elixir. Oh, that's either excellent or really bad. I think they. I think they share some DNA uh, or cool. or share some uh, tooling, but I'm not entirely sure because I think there might be a different approach. Yeah. So I I know. I'm sort of familiar with the guy who does the IntelliJ thing. Um, and um, yeah, I, I would expect it's pretty good. Um, cool. And IntelliJ, from what I understand, is generally like a quick and nice set of editors. Yeah, that's what I've heard too. I've never used them. Yeah, I sort of like the idea of a proprietary IDE that is not, that is independent yeah in the way they are so sure they are barely independent from from google and android at this point because android studio is an intellij thing uh, but that's because it was 
better than whatever Google was doing. So they were like, can we, uh, can we get this? Can we do this? Yeah. And also much better than Eclipse. And then the guys at IntelliJ figured, ah, why not build a language? And now Kotlin is the official language of Android. It's like... <laughs> well, that escalated quickly. They obviously know what they're doing in that realm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's interesting. And they they have their flavors for... So PHP Storm, I think, WebStorm, PyCharm. I think they even have their own... So they both make resharper which i believe is the uh set your computer on fire but oh damn it is it powerful extension for visual studio what does it do everything oh okay cool. the deep refactorings and stuff oh I, I know developers that will not do c sharp without resharper uh, and it's a costly thing yeah but it also makes your computer crawl <laughs> <laughs> but they also i think have their own ide for csharp.net ah, okay. which is interesting so they they keep providing alternatives for for the big uh, sort of the big enterprise environments that's good i wonder if they have a solution for that could replace xcode or that could step in for Xcode for building for the Mac. I'm not convinced they do mm. because I think some of the tooling they can't step around. Yeah. Isn't Xcode moving so fast too? Like a new major version two times a year or something. Yeah, I think it would be annoying to to maintain. Um, yeah. it's, it's a little bit of a hostile environment. Yeah, and everything is secret. And then new version of Xcode, nothing works. And then start again. It's, yeah. So that's also tooling. <laughs> Xcode is also tooling. That's also tooling. Oh, yes. Uh, and sometimes it's fantastic and sometimes it's awful. Yeah. I do not like working in Xcode, but there are parts of Xcode that are neat. Yeah, I can imagine. It's also a very, very native uh, application, Yeah, which is something I... So that's something I would like to see. Just more completely native editors hmm like vim yeah arguably but that's native to the terminal <laughs> native <laughs> gui editors maybe ah then you need in curses yeah i know What's the... no not in curses <laughs> well of course uh you get the old the uh, turbo pascal editor those were the days um i'm thinking of something in kde like the QT editor or something, where you can do the drag and drop stuff and all that. Yeah, uh, I've never used it. Yeah, it, for me it's not so much about sort of drag and drop and visvig because I don't do a lot of interface building and I would probably not use it. Yeah, but I would like it better. If, so Visual Studio Code is an example exemplary uh, implementation of. An Electron app because it is not that demanding for being an Electron app. Yeah, they've done a really good job. Yeah, uh, it often fires off extensions that will absolutely murder your computer. But <laughs> well, that's that's actually something I, I helped uh, push for with the Elixir language server. So, Dialyzer is very competent at using multiple cores. So whenever you have a large set of changes, so when you change branches, for example, yeah. it will have to do some reanalysis. So it will spike all cores. Oh. Which can make a computer fairly slow. <laughs> <laughs> this is a thing with the beam. If you're running, if you're running uh, user space applications on the beam, don't start it with the default settings for cores. Leave some course for for the user. <laughs> At least one course you can type. Yeah, yeah. I think I've I set my settings to just leave me two course do my job. <laughs> Have you tried uh, Dialyzer on the M1? I haven't yet. Um, so I have the M1 standing here, but I have been super busy for two weeks and have not touched it. 
Yeah, the <laughs> it's all Elm's fault. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, what I would like to do is to actually do some experimentation with with sort of how it feels. I'm also super curious because the beam starts a thread per core by default. Yep. And I wonder how that works with asymmetric cores. So I don't think the M1 is the first processor to provide asymmetric cores. Uh, some have done so sort of by accident or or by architectural uh, necessity. So I think when there's sort of two cores sharing a bus and yeah. then you can have cores that are that have more or less resources uh, depending on things. But I saw something about some server infrastructure server processor or something that had a concept of big and small cores. Interesting. Do you remember which one? I do not. Ah. It sounded like it was it was a fairly old thing. Um, oh, cool. But yeah, the M1. So I don't see a big. I don't see a big use case for sort of the efficiency course versus the performance course for running something like the Beam. So if you have Mac Minis that are going to be your servers. It's. I think that it's very hard to make a good heuristic about whether whether this request or this piece of processing should happen slowly or quickly, <laughs> and I don't think the Beam provides that sort of um, quality of service for the schedulers. Yeah, I don't think it can uh, can determine that this scheduler should only have this type of work. So. But but it raises some interesting questions, especially if this becomes a more common thing with differently spec cores. Oh yes, uh, I would like to have uh, like my keyboard input the things I want low throughput on on the uh, efficiency cores. What was the name? Not the performance one. Yeah, so an efficiency core uh, is the low power. Yeah, fairly quick, but not most. Uh, powerful core because i only want to have the letters on the screen or the characters on the screen quickly yeah. i don't care about anything else there and then i can run dialyzer on the performance course yeah exactly yeah and i i think there's a bunch of stuff around the apple's kernel and things that will will try to optimize this stuff but as far as i'm aware the beam pins a thread to each core yeah. So it would probably step all over that <laughs> optimization because <laughs> it it will be attempting to use all cores. So Yeah. I was going on about something before before I, we ended up on the M1 and the beam. We we were talking about IDEs and you were talking about uh, dialyzer almost putting your computer yeah, on fire. Yeah, uh, because Visual Studio Code is fairly performant in itself. Yep. Uh, but the extensions also tend to bog it down a bit. Uh, but what I would like to see is sort of native UI. And this, this is maybe more of a computers were better in the olden days rant that that we might get into when when we have more time in our day <laughs> but actually i saw recently on hacker news windows someone was going through windows 95 and trying some stuff and uh, sort of reviewing windows 95 currently <laughs> nice uh, it's not it's not very good at a ssl so the the internet is fairly broken <laughs> yeah uh, but something i was reminded of by seeing that is how incredibly consistent Windows 95 and 98 were UI-wise. Yep. There were very few applications that did not follow the default behavior. Exactly. Which made it incredibly navigatable, incredibly shortcutable. Everything behaved nicely. It's sort of what people require on a Mac these days. So Mac enthusiasts tend to be skeptical of sort of Electron apps and they want native apps and they're willing to pay for them. And that willing to pay for them part is the only reason they still exist there. <laughs> Indeed. And I think Linux has has a similar 
sort of story with there being mostly two uh, UI toolkits that have dominated the scene. Yeah, and then you have some other UI toolkits which are in use. And I think that's that stuff might have been starting to collapse over there as well. I haven't spent that much time desktop Linux recently. But when I was using, when I was getting into it, I used everything in GTK. And then when I was doing KDE, I did everything with Qt. So, and that worked nicely because consistency, <laughs> uh, things just behave the way you expected them to. And sort of web apps and hybrids and stuff don't. Yeah, that's true. And they perform worse. Yeah, absolutely. They can't be optimized to the same extent. Indeed. Uh, I was thinking, I think it is, I'm running Ubuntu 20.04 or something uh, at work, and they are using, if it's the latest, GNOME, GNOME 3 or something, and all buttons are in the wrong place. Everything is just wrong. I think every, every button is in the upper right corner. And I think that's kind of good if you're using it on an on a Android pad. I don't know why you would, but or on a touchscreen. Yeah. But I'm not. And I'm used to having all buttons at the bottom of the window. So uh, it's, it's quite an experience. Uh, <laughs> and... I don't know. It's. I think I prefer the GNOME 2 looks. Uh, but yeah. Ask me in a year or two. And yeah, but I remember the GNOME 3 upgrade and I did not find it an improvement, honestly. It, Indeed. It's like GNOME 2 was boring, but you could style it to be fancy if you like. Yeah. And let's. If we compare it to Windows 95, Windows 95 is incredibly boring. Yeah. And it works perfectly. It, yeah. And it's more good looking than windows 3.1 and 3.11 which are horrendously ugly but kind of fun uh, and i find the interesting part is uh, for many 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 years people who ran windows the server edition or the so nt enterprise edition yeah nt or uh, windows server 2003 or something like that yeah. they usually went into the appearance settings and did the make this look like Windows 2000, that is Windows 95 look. So, oh, Windows 2000 was a bit more polished than Windows 95, but still very boring. Yeah, and that you could do that on an XP install, I believe, as well. Yeah, I think so. And I believe I did a lot of the time because partly it felt like it was snappier. Yeah. But it was also not... It, it had aged so much better. I've yeah. still been doing something like that with sort of recent Windows versions, like Windows 7. I definitely did some of that. Cool. Uh, and now I'm on Windows 10. And I think I just recently turned everything green or something. Uh, I, I fiddled with some settings. <laughs> but Windows 10 has the consequences of Windows 8. And Windows 8 was a shit show. Yeah, I, I don't really know. That was the mobile tile thing. Yeah. Where they removed the start menu. Yeah. I I've only I've used Windows 8 for like 15 minutes or something. I'm running Windows 8.1 on my gaming computer. Never bothered to upgrade because it doesn't get better after Windows 8, right? Or does it? Windows 10 is better is in my book a lot better than Windows 8. Cool. Because I only use Windows for I think I only see the Windows interface for three minutes at a time. And that is when I boot, when I push the yes, I want to upgrade button. And when I start Steam and then I start a game and then I don't see Windows. Yeah, you should anymore. have a startup by auto start item for Steam in sort of theater mode or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I want kiosk the um, thing. Oh, yes. Xbox runs a version of Windows, some weird custom version. And I really want that version. <laughs> I want a so slim Windows version. I can just put it on a like 256 megabyte USB stick. And the only thing it does is with the basic operating system stuff like connecting to the internet and having drivers like DirectX. And then I can start Steam. That's what I want. 
nothing more. Yeah, unfortunately, they abandoned the Steam box, it seems. Boom! <laughs> but yeah, uh, Windows 10 has a lot of weird carryover from 8 and 9 and what they were trying to do. But I think they took it in the right direction because they reinstalled the start menu. <laughs> oh, that was the the start menu is Windows eight point one. Oh yeah, yeah, but but I think they've kept going backwards towards something that's more familiar. <laughs> okay, it gets better and better. But they have also put ads in it, so you win some, you lose some. Yeah, yeah, I cannot fathom what the idea is with Windows ten right now. It has two control panels. <laughs> or rather, it has half of the Mac's system preferences, but called system settings, I think. Oh, nice. And it has the old control panel. And depending on what you need to do, you need to go to one of these. <laughs> so, <laughs> and yeah. whenever you need to attempt to do something, you will probably end up in a Windows 10 UI, yeah. which will be full of... Uh, weird text, incomplete settings, and whenever you want to actually get something done, you hit the advanced button a few times until you end up in an old UI. (laughs) 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 And then stuff works. The device manager still works perfectly. It's the same as it ever was. I think you can still sort of install drivers from floppy. Oh, yeah. If you if you really need to, you just have to get a flop. 